Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. Hey, CBC family. We're the Hargis family. I'm Brad. I'm Tiffany. I'm Hannah. I'm Grace. I'm Mary. Here's a blessing from our family to yours. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you. And be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you. And give you peace. Have Have a great Sunday. Sunday. Welcome, everybody. How are we this morning? Good. Fourth of July. It's a great Sunday. We're going to kick it off and do the rhythm we do every single Sunday. It's, it's really interesting to come to church on Sunday morning or to watch online. And sometimes we have to put aside kind of how our culture forms us and realize we're being formed by the scriptures, which is just to say we're being formed by a God who's present. And so our world is, is really overly critical sometimes, and it causes us to come to spaces like this and be critical, but instead, we're gonna come to spaces like this and ask the simple question, where is God moving in my life this morning? What is he trying to teach me? How is he trying to grow me? How this morning am I seeing God differently? How this morning is my passion for God growing? Where is God moving? So we're just gonna take a couple of seconds and pray together. I'm gonna lead us in a prayer, give you some time to pray by yourself for a couple of seconds and ask that we see God clearly this morning. Let's pray. God, as we come to you and open your word, we know that you're near. Holy Spirit, speak to us. I pray that we can contribute to the conversations of faith going on all around us, that you might, this morning, as we read your scripture, teach us more of who you are, and might we see that play out in how we live, because that's the purpose. So this morning, let us come to the space expecting to hear from you. If you're willing, I just ask that you say a quick prayer, 10 or 15 seconds, and and just ask that the Holy Spirit might speak to your spirit this morning, that God will show up. And I pray... Um, I'd ask that you pray for me that that God might use preparation and the Holy Spirit to speak through his text to do a work in our lives and our community and our church. Pray these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said... Amen. If you got a Bible today, we are in Numbers chapter 15. We're picking up the narrative of Numbers, of Israel's wanderings in the wilderness. And today, today is the day where the wanderings kind of begin. They're going to start this 40-year journey where they just march around the desert while God leads them so they can learn more about God before they take over the land that he promised hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago. This text today is intertwined with what happened the last week. It seemingly is out of nowhere, 
But last week, the way that it was ended, if you know the story, was they sent spies into the land of Canaan, and God said, I'm going to give this to you. And instead of the people saying, man, these guys are really big, how much bigger is God? They said, these guys are really big, God's not big enough. And God said, that was not the response of faith that I've been building in you. And so he says, hey, some of you aren't going to be able to get there because you just can't trust me. And so they, they hear God's judgment and they say, you know what, we're just going to do it anyway. And Moses says, please don't do that. God's not with you. If you go, you're going to lose. And this is how chapter 14 ends. But they dared to go up to the crest of the hill, although neither the ark of the covenant of the Lord nor Moses, the presence of God that is, nor Moses departed from the camp. So the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country swooped down and attacked them as far as Hormah. They got beat. They got beat bad. And this is where chapter 15 starts. This week meets Israel right in the middle of their biggest failure. That's going to define it. My question this morning is, what does God say to us in our failures? I was 16. This is the first time I remember getting in big trouble. Not little trouble like you hit your brother, go to timeout. Big trouble like when my parents realized I wasn't, I was, my parents realized like I was that kid that other parents wanted to keep their kids away from. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, I was 16 and I was at a buddy's house sleeping over. This is also the last time I ever got to sleep over at a friend's house. And... He had a second story bedroom, and I remember thinking, it's going to be fun if we just sneak out at night. And so we did, because we were athletes in Spider-Man, and we crawled down the side of this house, and I had a 1988 Volvo 240DL with a 12-inch subwoofer in the back. You could hear me coming from Flower Mound if I was in Carrollton, and we got in my car, and we pushed it away from the house, and we drove away. And we visited friends, and we felt like we were invincible, and it was 1 and 2 in the morning, and that was well after curfew. It's about 4 in the morning, and we decided, let's go home. And so we round the corner to this guy's house, and we're thinking, we are so good at this. Nobody can catch us. And we turn the car off, put it in neutral, and start pushing. And my friend Aaron looks at me. I was driving, and he looks at me, and he said, uh, you won't believe this, but my dad is walking down the street towards us. <laughs> and I said, that's not true. And then I heard him. It was true. <laughs> and he starts yelling, what are you guys doing? Get in the house. Not appropriate church word. Not appropriate church word. You get the drift, right? And uh, I remember thinking, this is not going to be good for me. This is the biggest trouble I've ever gotten. We went to church the next morning with his family. They had this meet and greet time, right? And every time, this is a Lutheran church, they said, hey, shake the hand of your neighbor. And his dad looked at us and didn't shake our hands. And my buddy leaned over and said, that's the first time he's never not shaken my hand, right? Fast forward. I'm going home that afternoon, and he said, you better tell your parents. I said, of course. <laughs> so I got home. I was pretty ashamed at what I'd done. Also pretty tired. I'd been up all night, guys. And I did not tell my parents. I took a nap, <laughs> you know? Because in the middle of those moments, when we know that we failed, the last thing we want to do is walk into a place where the people we love are there and admit to it. Israel just got beat. They got beat bad because they didn't have enough fear. They, they didn't have enough faith in God, and the fear overtook them. This is where our story picks up. What does God say to us in those moments of failure, and what does that conversation he has with us say about him? Because whether it's a big moment of failure, we all have them. You've messed up right? Whether you've snuck out of a house or done something else, what do we do in those moments where we know that we failed? That's where our story picks up in Numbers 15. And it's a really interesting chapter because 
if you're just reading through the narrative of numbers, you look at it and say to yourself, this doesn't really fit. This doesn't fit the narrative of what's going on. And there's four parts in this chapter. There's verses one and two. There's verses three to about verse 30. And then there's 30 to about 36 and then 37 to the end. And in each one of these, they're seemingly disconnected, but I think they tell a really beautiful story about God and about what God says shapes us as followers of and so what we're going to see as we walk through this text is some really interesting ideas on, on how God meets us in the middle of failure and says, I'm going to build it to where you don't do this again. And so he starts, look at verse 1 and 2. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses, speak to the Israelites and tell them, when you enter the land where you're to live, which I'm giving you, stop. It's a huge sentence. There's one author that said, God gave them three guarantees right off the bat. They're coming home defeated. Some of them are dead. And right off the bat, God gives them three guarantees. He says that he's going to give the guarantee of the continuity of his word, the security of the land, and the preservation of the people. So they come, their heads in tow, looking down in shame, and they wonder, where is God? In the middle of this, God says, I'm going to still speak to you. You cannot overlook that moment. Because I'll tell you what, man, in the middle of our failure, our fear is that God moved far from us, not near to us. But the story of the scripture seemingly again and again and again is God meets us right in the middle of our failure and says, I didn't go anywhere. That's why I love Psalm 100. I do those, that, that psalm at most weddings I do. The Psalm 100, it's really short. It's five verses. And it starts by saying, we're going to get to God and we're going to get there with gladness and jumping and joy and thanksgiving. We're going to yell, scream and shout and sing because God is good. Then it has a bit in the middle about identity, and it ends with the why, not the what. It ends with this idea that we're going to do all those things because in verse 5, God's loyal love endures from generation to generation to generation. We sing and shout and jump and dance because we know God's love isn't going anywhere. The security of promise in the middle of failure is huge. And the first thing God does when his people are beat and beat badly is he meets them and he says, I'm still speaking to you. I'm still going to keep my promise you're still going to have a future. You cannot overlook how big that is when we have moments of vulnerability where we feel like we failed. So God says to him, you are going to still have the land. Actually, that phrase in there, the land I'm going to give you, same phrasing he uses in 13, chapter, chapter 13, verse 2, where he says, go in the land in the first place. And then he says, I'm still going to keep your people going. It's an immaculate promise of grace and forgiveness in the middle of a moment when we need it most. He's saying God's a God that keeps his promises even when the people don't. And so he starts the chapter with this amazing reminder of his security, of his love, of his faithfulness, of his promise in the middle of failure. And that's what we need right off the bat. When we know people in our life, when we failed, or we know people that failed, or I'm a parent now to two small children, when they fail me again and again and again, we meet them first with love and grace and security. You're still my kid, and nothing will change that. Don't like what you did, right? But you're still my kid, and we are a family. And so God does that. He says to these people in a fragile moment where they failed, you are still my people. I'm not going anywhere. But what's next is what's interesting to me. So he starts with that, and that's enough to make you cry, but then he keeps going, and he says, you know what you need right after that? You know what you need? More laws, right? 
And so he spends the next, and this is why some people think this chapter was dropped in the middle of the narrative, because we have story, 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 more laws, story, story, story after this. And the question I want to ask today is, why does God, in the middle of this section of failure, why does he give them more laws? Because one thing I know is that people that don't know the Old Testament very well, or maybe don't know Jesus, think that our God is legalistic, think that all God does is a fun killjoy of laws that, that take away from joy in life. And, and what you have to do with these laws is you really have to look behind the laws in this chapter to see the beauty of what God is doing in the first place. You have to ask the question, what is it about the laws that God's giving that's telling a bigger story about what God wants to do? And so he starts with laws. There's actually seven laws in this section, but there's three kinds of laws. So the first grouping of laws starts in verse 3 and goes through verse 16. And and we'll treat that as kind of one section. And then there's another section that starts in 17 and really goes to about verse uh, 21. And then one from 21 to 30. And we'll do it those in three different sections. So he starts in verse 3. He says, you make an offering by fire uh, from the herd of the flock, whether a burnt offering or a sacrifice for discharging a vow, or as a freewill offering in your solemn feasts, to create a pleasing aroma to the Lord, verse 4, then one who presents his offering of the Lord must bring a grain of one-tenth of an epah, a finely ground flour mixed with one-fourth of a hin of olive oil. And you're saying, oh, that sounds lovely and interesting, you know? So really, if you skip down to verse 11, it says, this is what's to be done for each ox, each ram, each male lamb or goat. You must do so for each one according to the number that you prepare. What he's doing He's saying, you failed, here's some laws around offerings. And and what in this first section he's doing is he's saying, depending upon what you bring, what what burnt offering you bring, you have to bring another addition of flour and or wine and or oil. Saying the bigger the sacrifice, the more of the flour, wine, and oil you have to bring. And all the Democrats said, see, I knew God loved progressive taxing, you know? (laughs) You can see how that one landed in the South. Um... (laughs) On July 4th. <laughs> but, but, but really, he's saying, hey, the size of your burnt offering dictates the amount of flour, wine, or oil you have to bring. And to understand what he's doing, you have to understand the offering system. Why would God, why would God dive into more laws in the middle of the failure? Don't you realize people that just broke the rules don't need more rules? Is what I want to say when I sneak out of windows at 16. But, but here's the offering system in the Old Testament. It's five different kinds of offerings. It's found in the book of Leviticus. It's not just a one-time thing. It's a ritual that the people followed again and again and again. It's a ritual and a rhythm that they followed so that they could be near to God. And and one thing we miss with the offering system is it it was less legalistic than we think it was. And it was way more intimate. In Leviticus 1, it's talking about the burnt offerings It says that you must lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it'll be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. Then the one presenting the offering must slaughter the bull before the Lord, the sons of Aaron, the priests. They must present the blood and splash the blood against the sides of the altar, which which was at the entrance of the meeting tent. So the reason offerings were a big deal is because it was something that you valued. 
So God's saying this rhythm that you're going to fall into of offerings, this rhythms of giving is something that's intimate and it's something that you have touched and then transferred. This rhythm of offering is something that's serious. It's going to happen again and again and again as you come to me. And so God says, here's your failure. I'm not going anywhere. I'm still going to give you the land. Every time you come to make an offering, I want you to give X, Y, and Z. See, I think it's really hard for us to connect with an offering culture because it's so different from the currency from which we trade in our culture of church worship now. Because offerings in the first century world were really less about what I got and more about what I am giving. You knew the cattle that you gave. You raised it from when you were a kid. There was my dad grew up on a farm in Iowa. My grandmother still lives there. And one Christmas, there was a really bad snowstorm. And there was a cow that was going to give birth, and she did. Went and found little calves, and she'd left one of them because I, I think that she couldn't help it, and it was really cold. And so we took it in. And for the two weeks I was there or so, we raised it in the basement of my grandparents' place. I remember, I remember feeding it bottles of milk, you know? Okay, that is the kind of relationship you had with your animals in this world, and then you brought that animal to die on your behalf. You oftentimes didn't leave the place of offering without blood on you. It was a big deal. It's something you did often. It was intimate. This is the language that Moses is using as God is talking to him to describe what God wants them to do going forward. And why we can't miss that is because we can't miss the overtones of, 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 of cost that came with how they worshiped God in the first place. And we operate under, uh, really, the, the currency of consumption and convenience, not cost. So that, that kicks against how we do worship a little bit. And it's important because what God's going to get to here is every time you have rituals, every time you have laws, every time you're reminded, every time you bring offerings, remember, remember, remember to be grateful for what you have. So he says... Every time you bring a burnt offering, bring flour and bring oil and bring wine. And what's interesting about those three things, why God taxed those three things together is because they were the main uh, agrarian exports of Canaan. So every time they came, they were reminded that God had given them a land with lots of flour and lots of wine and lots of oil. Every time they came, they were reminded to fight against a culture of complaining and grumbling because they just needed to be grateful. There's a principle of thankfulness in this law. Israel must return to the Lord and offering from the land which he'd given to them in the first place. It's the very opposite of the grumbling or complaining that led them to the place they were at in the first place. What he's doing is he's setting up a rhythm of gratefulness in their land because they forgot, which is the story of Numbers. So, so the first kind of offering is this rhythm, this ritual, this law of gratefulness that they can't get away from because they have to keep coming back to it. And then he says in verse 17, there's another kind of law I want you to live by. He says, when you enter the land I'm bringing you and you find some food from the land, you must offer up a raised offering to the Lord. You must offer up a cake of the first of your finely ground flour and a raised offering. As you offer the raised offering of the threshing floor, so you must offer it up. Verse 21, you must give to the Lord some of your first or your finely, of your finely ground flour as a raised offering in your future generations. So we have more flour, different kind of flour. The first three references we have to flour is about processed flour. This flour is the first that you got. 
That word bread there actually is the word challah. That's where we get challah bread from, which just as a bonus is the best kind of French toast. Write that down, right? Don't say you didn't get anything out of this morning. And, and he's saying that the first kind of flour you get, you're going to take the very first kind of flour you get, you're going to take and you're going to make it into a bread and you're going to give it to me. This is called the first fruit offering in Israel. And what this does is it just reminds Israel every time they come, every time they find flour, every time they bake bread, it reminds Israel who was the cause of what they've been given. This is a priority reminder, you know? There's a principle in business uh, called pay yourself first. You guys know that one? So like if you own a business or maybe you don't, maybe you just have a budget, uh, you pay yourself first, which essentially is you realize if you own a business, my chief end goal in this business is to make money for me and my family. And so the first person you pay out of your business is you. It's a reminder of what your priority is. It's a reminder that you are the one that's setting up your Roth and your IRA and your contributions. It's a reminder that your future is secure because you work hard. What God says here is the first thing you're going to do with what you have is give it to me as a reminder that I'm the cause of your security, that I'm the cause of your provision, that I'm the cause of the goodness in your life, that I am the priority above you in those things. It fights not just a culture of complaining and grumbling. It fights a culture of me by saying God is the cause of. It gives credit where credit is due. If the first offering was about gratefulness, the second was about priority and the cause of provision. It's really interesting. After the second temple fell, fast forward a few hundred years in Israel's history, they didn't have a temple to bring this to, and so really pious Jews would throw a handful of dough into fire um, as a mini sacrifice. And, and they had a phrase that they said where they would make every, uh, every hearth and altar and every kitchen a house of God. So you know that everywhere we go, no matter where we go, we make God a priority and realize that this is his space and I get to live in it. It fights a culture that they might grow up and believe that they conquered Canaan. And so God's saying, here's some laws. I'm never going to leave you, but, but every time you come and give a burnt offering, you're going to give more flour, oil, and wine and be grateful that I gave it to you. Every time you come and you have some flour, your first bit is to me, remembering the priority of you to me and me to you, that I'm the cause of your provision. And then there's a third one that starts in verse 21. He's going to say in verse 21 and 22, if you sin unintentionally and do not observe all these commandments that the Lord has spoken to Moses... All that the Lord has commanded you by the authority of Moses from that day uh, and the, the Lord commanded Moses and continuing through future generations, verse 24, then if anything is done unintentionally without the knowledge of the community, the whole community must prepare one bull for a burnt offering. So we have laws around thankfulness, we have laws around priority, and then we have laws around sin, failure. So I think this is really important. God's saying, I'm not going anywhere, I'm not leaving, but here's what I want you to know, that be grateful to me, put me first, and when you fail again, there's a way to make it right. When you fail again, there's a way to wipe away that failure from my eyes. That word atonement that we see in our text here in the middle, it, it literally means, um, when he says forgiven, it literally means that it's going to be wiped away from God's consciousness, if you will, that he will forget the offense that his people have given. It's forgiven. And it, what it does in the middle of failure 
is it doesn't say, now get up and don't do it again ever, ever, ever. And if you do, I will forgive you. It's a reminder that built into the rhythm of God and God's people is a constant way to be reminded that God is gracious. Because I need it. Because even though I snuck out of a window when I was 16, that wasn't the last time I made mistakes. Because even though we failed once, it doesn't mean that we have this, this idea that we'll never fail again. You will and I will. And in the middle of that, we know that God made a way for that. That our sin doesn't surprise God, it saddens God. But it doesn't surprise God. And he says, hey, there's a way to still come to me. Grace is interwoven throughout the law in this text. My favorite example of God's relationship to us when we fall down and fail is that of a toddler walking. We've used it before. I'll use it again. This whole idea that, you know, when your kid learns to walk, they take two steps and they fall over. You don't get mad. You're just excited they took two steps. You help them get back up again and say, keep on going. In the middle of this text where they just came from failure, God says, and when you fail again, this is how we get up and keep walking together. It's a beautiful reminder that God says, my sin doesn't define me, but his grace does. And so he deals with some sins of the people, and specifically here, sins they didn't mean to commit. He says, when you commit these sins. And in verse 22, we see community sins, and in verse 27, we see individual sins. He's covering both, saying whether the people do it with a big capital P or whether you do it with a big lowercase u, it, it will be covered. And so here is my question again, why does God meet failure with rules? Why does he meet failure with laws. Because simply put, I think laws are societally constructed or contracted, if you will, rhythms, right? They're things that we agree upon are valuable that we want to keep on doing. And there's nothing worse, I think, than empty laws, empty rules. I went to a very, very strict college, and I remember they had rules against watching TV. I wasn't allowed to. I lived in 19 floors, I mean, a dorm that was 19 stories of dudes, a lot of guys, and you weren't allowed to watch TV. There was a TV on the first floor that had to be on news and sports all the time, and there was a TV, one on the second floor, and whoever got there first could actually say what was on the TV, but you were not allowed to watch TV the rest of the building, okay? You were allowed to play video games all day, every day, and they said, we don't want you to watch TV because it takes away from the community feel. We want you to be in the, in the shared places having talks about Jesus and life and goodness, but you could play Halo all day long in your room until 2 a.m. and nobody would stop you. That's an empty law, everybody. That bothered me. So did I break that rule? Who knows? <laughs> empty laws bother us because they're void of value. Good laws, good laws are good for us because they reflect the values we have. Good laws are when we come together, we remember this is what we want to keep doing. Good laws are rhythms that, that we're forced to live out because they remind us of the values that we have. Why does God give them rules in the middle of failure? Because he says, you've forgotten your values and these laws will help you not forget them again. It's this beautiful text in which he comes back to him and he says, hey, you've lost your values that got you here. Let me give you some rhythms that'll protect against that. And we see the big idea that our rhythms, that your rhythms reveal your values. And that's what July 4th is all about, right? We have these rhythms where we come together and we celebrate what makes America great and what we really value. Stuff blowing up, right? You know that's true. That's why we have nine Fast and Furious movies right now, okay? We come together and we say, this is what we value. The sacrifice that was made so that we could do this this morning. How amazing is that? 
We come together and we celebrate the freedom that we have knowing that freedom is never free. We, we come together and we celebrate the rituals and we celebrate the rhythms that show our shared values together. God gives them laws not to take away from their joy, but to add to their joy. God gives them laws not to say that he's not gracious, but to prove that he's gracious. He's saying every time you make an offering, which is a rhythmic thing, do these things to remember that I am the one that gave you, that I am the one that should be first, and that you are not defined by your fate or these laws show his goodness and they remind us that our rhythms will reveal our values. So God comes to these people and he says, just as a reminder, remember what your rhythms are because they will reveal your values. That's section two. And then in section three, there's a little pivot starting in verse 30. And he says, I'll read it with you. But the person who acts defiantly, whether native-born or a resident foreigner, insults the Lord. The person must be cut off from among his people because he's despised the Lord's message and he's broken his commandment. That person must be completely cut off. His iniquity will be on him. So if you're putting these things together, you're like, man, there's this text about grace and about how we can overcome sin. And then all of a sudden, the next verse is like, but this dude is never going to be forgiven. Like this dude gets kicked out of the camp, probably going to stone him, not going to go well for him and hers. And what he's doing here is he's simply reminding the people that if you choose God, you get God. If you don't choose God, you don't get God. That, that phrase there where it says the person who acts defiantly, in the Hebrew, that literally means, it's a graphic expression, that means the person who sins with a high hand, which means it's the person who literally looks at God's laws and puts his hand in the air and says, I don't like that, and, and is in a position to attack a graceful God. It's someone who says, I am God, get away from me. And every time in the scripture somebody says that, that puts distance between them and God. Every time. From Adam to us. It's somebody that says, I don't think God is good and God is for my good. That's why you get some church discipline texts in Matthew 18. When he says, hey, if there's sin in your camp, uh, confront it one-on-one. Because that's where we show value to one another. And then he says, if that doesn't work, bring a couple more people into that conversation and maybe, maybe we'll get the picture that it's serious. And and if that doesn't work, bring a couple of the leaders in. And if that doesn't work, then you have no option but to say, hey, if you don't believe in what we're doing, then then maybe, maybe you don't want to be here. And not in a shameful way, but in a way that hopefully opens our eyes to the severity of sin and says God's good is our good. If you don't believe that, then (laughs) you don't have a whole lot of good being around us. And so what he says in this text is, hey, remember not to do what you just did. When I said, I'm giving you this land, and you put your hand high in the air, and you said, yeah, that's not okay. He says, if you do that, it will lead to destruction. And he gives an example. In verse 32, he says, when the Israelites were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering wood on the Sabbath day. And it it lends out this example in the next few verses about a guy who starts gathering wood on the Sabbath day and then gets kicked out of camp. And you might say, well, why is that in the text? Because he's showing us an example of what it looks like to defy God. And God's saying, if you defy me, it doesn't end well. Specifically, the Sabbath there, go much longer on Sabbath, but Sabbath was the sign of the agreement God made with his people in Moses. 
Sabbath was the sign of all the things God was going to do good. And, 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 and if you read this in that context, you'd understand that this guy in the middle of camp on the day they're supposed to rest, this guy in the middle of camp gets up and defies God and says, I'm going to go gather wood, knowing full well that's not in the law of God. He says, I'm going to go gather wood, and he marches out to do it, and everybody watches. He says, I'm going to go gather wood knowing that I shouldn't do this today. It's not, we think that, hey, that's not a big deal. It's just wood. In that context, it was a big deal because Sabbath was a value they had to remind themselves that God worked for them. They didn't work for God. Sabbath was essential to the covenant because they were slaves for 400 years and they were always defined by what they did. And in Sabbath, God is telling these slaves of a people that it's not about what you do for me. I like you because I've chosen to like you, not what you contribute to this conversation. Sabbath is a simple but beautiful reminder that God works for us. Sabbath is a reminder that we can't control what we think we can control all the time. Sabbath is a reminder that God loves us without us having to contribute. (laughs) Sabbath is a reminder of grace. And this man stands up and says, I don't want any of that. I'm going to break Sabbath. It's a big deal in this context. That's why he's telling this story. One of my favorite writers talks about Sabbath. And he says, what happens when we stop working and controlling nature, when we don't operate machines or pick flowers or pluck fish from the sea, when we cease interfering in the world, we're acknowledging that it's God's world to begin with. And so the story about Sabbath is much more than just about picking up wood. It's about acknowledging that either I need God or I don't need God. He's raising his hand against God and saying, you are not my good. God says, don't do that. I want to live with you in the land that I've given you. Here's some rhythms that are healthy. Be thankful and put me first and remember that there is grace. Because if you don't, it's going to end poorly. It just did. You're just coming off failure and defeat. Don't forget and let that value define you anymore. But if you keep these rhythms, you won't. And then he ends his text, verse 37, 38. He says, speak to the Israelites and tell them to make tassels for themselves on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and put a blue thread on the tassel of the corners. So really significant text in the Hebrew culture. He says, I'm going to give you these rhythms that will reveal your values that won't Help, that will help you not forget the good things that will define you as a people. You're going to call them laws, but they're measures of graces. I'm going to give those to you. And I know that's not going to be enough. You need more reminders. So the hem of your garment, you're going to put this blue thread on. And the hem of your garment was a big deal in the first century world and even before the first century world. In, in 1 Samuel, for example, we see a picture where David crept up on King Saul. You remember the story? He was in a cave and he cut off the hem of Saul's cloak. And a- afterwards, he was remorseful for what he'd done because you have to understand that it's a much more symbolic act, the hem of a garment, and cutting somebody's off. Because the hem of your garment was essentially tied to who you were as a person. It, it was more than just your clothes, it was your identity. In some ancient cultures, a man could divorce his wife by cutting off the hem of a robe, symbolically turning her loose while the others in other cultures an imprint of the hem served as a person's personal signature. So, so putting tassels on the hem of your garment wasn't merely a matter of decoration. It was an expression of identity. And with that identity came purpose. So you're saying, on your garment, where we find identity, put this thread, this colored thread. And that color symbolized royalty in that world. And he's reminding Israel of two things, their priesthood and their purpose. Everywhere you go, 
have these on. Everywhere you go, be reminded of your values. Everywhere you go, be reminded that I called you out so that you might bring goodness to the rest of the world. Everywhere you go, might you have reminders every step of the way of who you are and what your purpose is all throughout the wilderness. That's why Israel's flag today is the color it is and pious Jews still wear these tassels. That's why. Because it reminds them of God's purpose and promise to them. It reminds them of God's goodness. It reminds them of the law that isn't binding, but rather freeing by saying, this is who I am. And these are the values. These are the values that are revealed as you practice my rhythms, my laws, my ways. So the question this morning comes back pretty simply to what, our, what are our rhythms? Because our rhythms will reveal our values. What does what we do say about what we value? In this chapter of laws following major defeat, God is making sure, making sure, making sure that going forward, they remember to practice the rhythms that reveal the right values. And I'd say the same thing to us. And so it's a really simple question. What are your rhythms? And what values are revealed from them? About a month ago, uh, on staff, we started doing this 1130 reading. And Delin came and just said, I'd really love to do this, and I think it's a great idea. So if you're in the building at 1130, doesn't have to be staff. If you're in this building at 1130, any day of the week, Monday through Thursday, we meet up in the fireside room and we read some scripture together. It just centers us and reminds us of why we do our jobs, of what our purpose is and why we're here. It's a rhythm that will reveal our values and that will establish it going forward. I had a friend of mine back in college who actually set his password as a Bible verse because he struggled with lust and he remembered that every time I put this verse in, I'm going to be reminded of my values. Because here's the problem with Israel. So often they forgot the real values to the ones that were in the moment. That's what emotion does sometimes. It's really good, but it's really damaging if it goes unchecked. And so God's saying, if you keep doing these things, they will keep you centered. What are our rhythms? And what does it say about our values? So I think as we have a conversation about the law here. We remember the beauty behind it, not just the what, but the why behind the what that reveals the beauty of the law in the first place, you know? It's not a legalistic bent. It's God saying, keep doing these things so you don't forget again and again and again, because this whole book is about Israel having a forgetful problem, you know? And so as, as a church community, what are some of our rhythms? One is showing up on Sunday morning, watching online. We're going to do a chat in a few weeks about the value of being together in community. And to go back to what worship is and what worship was and the, and the idea of offering, here's the deal. I, I can think about 17 fun things to do on Sunday morning. I read a blog from this national uh, pastor. He's kind of a big deal. And, and one of the things he said coming out of the pandemic is people's realized, they've realized that, that, you know what Sunday mornings are when you don't go to church? Really fun, <laughs> you know? I think sometimes people want to feel like, well, uh, they're going to love to come back to church. And, and most people have and most people do. But, but church also sometimes gets in the way of brunch. And it gets in the way of what we want to do. And church now is more convenient than ever. But here's what this says to me is sometimes, sometimes church should come at a cost. Because sometimes it reveals the beauty behind what we're giving up to do. And so I think what this text tells me, what this shows me, what this reminds me of, Sometimes my rhythms will reveal my values. And, and so we show up on a Sunday morning. We can do other things. 
Sometimes it's simply about offering and giving. Part of our church value system is we give to the work of God, and we give to missionaries, and we give to communities, and we give to charities, and we give to people, and we give to the church because those rhythms reveal our values, that God is good, and he's worth our money, and he's worth our time. I think one of the things we do as a church is we take communion together. At Crossroads, we try to take communion once a month. There are churches that do it every week, and that's great. We try to do it once a month, and, and, and people ask me, Andrea asks me, hey, when are we doing communion this month? And I'll say, well, it doesn't ever fit in the sermon teaching series this month, but that's okay. We're going to do it anyway. And so sometimes it's going to be a hard Jesus juke pivot to the right, and we'll say, let's do communion at the end, or sometimes we'll do it at the beginning during worship because doing and taking communion reminds us. It reminds us of the values we have and what Christ did. And so we're going to end today by taking communion. So if you have it in front of you, if you have it at home, we do these things as a reminder of what Jesus did for us, as a reminder of why we're here in the first place, as a reminder of the cost of our sin, as a reminder of. And so today we take this cup together as a reminder of Christ's grace. And so Jesus, on the night that he went to the cross, he ate dinner with his disciples and he grabbed some bread and he held it up and he said, this is my body, and it's going to be broken for you. Every single time that you eat bread together, be reminded of what I did for you. Eat. And then he took some wine, and he said, this is my blood. It's poured out for you. Whenever you drink this wine together, May this rhythm remind you of the value of the cross. May it remind you of the beauty of the cross. May it remind you of why we're here in the first place, the overwhelming love and grace of God. Every time you take this and drink, remember Jesus' sacrifice. We have these rhythms built in to remind us of our values as a community of God. Because we need to be reminded early and often. Because we are a kingdom of priests. We are called out by God, defined by God for the purposes of God. And so he has this chapter of laws in the middle to remind us who we are and to remind us not to forget, again, like they did. There's a coach of the Phoenix Suns. They just made it to the NBA championship. And he has this interesting phrase. So they'll watch film together, and he'll... Uh, you know, if, you, if you've ever been to sports and you watch film and you do something bad, a lot of times you look away because the coach is yelling at you. But he says, hey, I don't call people out, I call people up, you know? And I love that phrase. He says, I don't call people out, I call people up to play a better version of basketball so that we might all be better. This is what the laws do. They don't call us out, they call us up. This is what the community of God does together, right? <laughs> we get to a place where we, not just individually, but we, as we live into the rhythms of God, can remind each other of our shared values, and we can be, we can be what God called us to be, kingdom and priests in a land that needs it. We get to do this together and show people the value of a God who doesn't go far from us in our failure, but who loves us through it. We get to show people the value of grace, the value of gratefulness, and the overwhelming value of what it looks like to live for God and not for ourselves, to put him first. 
It's a chapter right after failure where God meets people and he says, this is who I am. This is who you are. Don't forget. May your rhythms reveal the better values of Jesus. And may that, our be, may that be our goal as well as followers of Jesus. Let me pray. God, I'm so thankful that you call us up, that you've reminded us of the rhythms that we get to do together that reveal the better values. May we be that church. May we be that as leaders in our community and as fathers and as sons and as daughters. May we live into the calling of Christ. And may our little actions every day be indicators of what we truly value, the things we find in the scriptures, things in the ways of Jesus. So show us. Show us this week where our values need to change or where, where our rhythms need to change to reveal better values, where, where you're calling us to step into maybe better, healthier rhythms. Maybe the ones that we have that are good that we need to celebrate more. May we be a people that practice again and again and again the things of God so that we might proclaim to everybody else why he's good, even in the middle of failure. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.